Hello and welcome to BB On The Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and in this episode I'm joined by fellow member of the Brass Band Media, editor of Four Bars Rest, Ewan Fox. We'll reflect on the ongoing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the world of brass bands and consider how the future might look in the medium term and beyond. But first, Ewan looks back on the past few months and the time he would usually spend tucked away in the corner of concert halls, large and small, listening to bands in action. No, it's been replaced really by being tucked away in my house in Blenavon in South Wales, I'm afraid to say. It's been 10 months unlike anything else I think we really experienced ever in the banding world. I think, you know, not old enough to remember what it would have been like when there was no banding during the war years. But the only time I can remember where there's been, you know, such restrictions and that part of it there was going back really when the miners' strike was on, you know, when, you know, socially it was, you know, a time of great unrest, whatever. But this one has been way, way, way beyond that. And I, I just think, you know, if we can get out of it at the other end at some time, whatever it is in the future, and hopefully get out of it with not losing bands, I think that's will be, you know, a really minor triumph in what has been a very, very testing time. We know that so many people involved in the world of brass bands are missing it dearly, whether they're used to the fast-paced, rough-and-tumble of top-level banding, or maybe they usually get together once a week to rehearse their favourite concert music and catch up with friends. But over the past few months, one of the main issues facing everybody at a very practical level, it's been the issue of motivation, hasn't it? Bands usually rehearse to perform, and that just hasn't been possible, at least in the traditional sense. Of course, we have seen lots of efforts to embrace technology. We've seen the Zoom rehearsals, the distance banding videos, we've had the online solo contests, the online band contests, we've seen residential courses moved online, and we've had webinars from the likes of Brass Bands England. What have you made of some of the initiatives that have taken place in an effort to keep people engaged over the past few months? What has been good, I think, is that it's actually given banding a, 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 a kick up the backside, but it's been like a reset button. And we've needed it, I think, for about 30 years. Well, since the advent, really, of, of, of the internet, which is, which is starting to play it, it's given us an opportunity which we haven't taken. And this has really forced us to take that opportunity. So that's been the good thing with that. I wouldn't decry any band or any individual who has tried something online, uh, be it an individual performance, you know, playing carols that we've seen online, or bands that have been entering the competitions, such as the Corey Online competition or the Phones competition, etc. It doesn't make any difference to me, you know, if they've been good, average, or terrible at it. At least they've been doing it. Because as you say, break at the beginning of that question, it's all about the motivation factor. And the motivation for this is about trying to get people carrying on the one thing that binds us all together, and that's making brass band music. And that, I think, has been the, the greatest difficulty. You get that initial enthusiasm, don't you, when people say, great, we're going to have a quiz night and, you know, we're going to have a get-together and that part of it. Then you come into a little bit then where it's, oh, blimey, right, I, I've still got to do it because you've got that, you know, that commitment and dedication to your band. And then after that, I think we've gone through the third phase, which has been, this is a, you know, a little bit of a chore, but I'm still going to do it. It's the fourth phase now, 
is how we re look to say, right, I can carry it on because there's some light at the end of the tunnel and get out of it the other end. I think the key, though, is to learn the lessons of what have actually come, the positives that we can take out of this and use that for the future because we will not go back to the norms that we perceived that we had before COVID and the restrictions struck. Anybody who thinks that we're going to go to full concert halls and competitions with 18 bands and stuff like that, that may be three, four, five years down the road, but our behaviour has changed. Our behaviour as a society has changed. Our behaviour as individuals playing in bands has changed and also our expectations. And I don't think, and it would be unfair to ask individuals to put, you know, say, great, that's that out of the way. Let's get back to what we did previously without taking any notice of it. I don't think that's going to happen and it shouldn't happen either. Let's learn the lessons from it. Let's move forward. Because I think it can be used in a really good way if it's done properly. And I think the other key is that if people have talked together, you know, concert promoters, contest organizers, individual bands, whatever, to try and look at some sort of communal way forward, you've got to ask yourself the question, what are we, you know, why are we here and what do we do? It's a little bit existentialist, I know, but we've got to do that. We've got to realize that we're in a business which needs to be playing live music to audiences not to ourselves. We've done that for the last 35 years. We are not going to survive in the future by doing that. So if that's the positive that comes of it, all well and good. But it's, it's been a real challenge. And I think you're right. The motivation has been the, the, the one factor that, that is the thread that has gone all the way through that. It's interesting you talk about the different phases that we've gone through over the past few months. I know anecdotally of quite a few people who were really dedicated to begin with in terms of they thought oh I might have a little bit more time in my hands maybe I'm not commuting to work and so on and so forth and they used it to practice and they had the instrument out for hours a day but as things have gone on of course that motivation has faded away and I hear stories week to week and I don't wish to be too negative about some folks now who haven't played for a few months they maybe haven't picked up their instrument and they're taking the opportunity to say look enough's enough I'm done, I've got used to not travelling, not practising, I've quite liked being able to watch some more Netflix. Now, of course, on the other side of the coin, there might be those feeling like that now, and then when things do relax a little bit, they're tempted back. But how concerned are you about that potential drop-off in players and bands? I am concerned about potential drop-off, but I think you've really got to look at the levels of banding that we are talking about. It's, it's always a fool's errand for me when people talk about the health of the banding nation and all they're li literally looking at is at the very top level, elite banding. Because as we, you know, as we all know, the very top bands, as long as they're well run, will always attract the type of player who is willing to give the commitment and dedication to you know, literally seven days a week, give up their weekends, go abroad on tours and all that sort of stuff, practice two hours a night at home. They, they will do it as long as those bands are well run and have got a vision and a focus. Not all top bands at that level have got that. And there's the possibility of some of those bands will really struggle when, when we get back. But that's an organizational type of thing. The real worry, I think, is at the foundation level where it's community banding. And I mean community banding in the sense whereby you've got local players who enjoy making music, not particularly competitively, because there's a lot of non-competitive bands out there, and those are the people who, you know, don't go home and say, you know, right, I've got to do an hour's practice every night. You know, I, I enjoy going to the rehearsal once a week or possibly twice a week. Uh, and they've at the moment be, I've seen that, as you said, replaced by 
anything from Netflix to, you know, nice, enjoyable walks or whatever, exercise, the right distance from home, et cetera, that part of it, to make sure we've got to say this, all those type of things. They've found different things to do. And again, it's up to those bands and to be able to try and attract those players back. That's where the real worry is. Again, I go back to the point, we've got to ask the question, what's the purpose of us as a brass band? Why do we get together twice a week or whatever? What, what's the, the nature of what we do? And again, over the last 25 years, that reliance that we've had on measuring everything through competition and contest and success has been a missed opportunity. Success for brass bands has got to come in how many times that we get out and do concerts and attract an audience and get people to actually pay to come to listen to us play. What we play and whether or not it's at whatever standard is you know, neither here or there. It is about making sure that your community realizes that there's a brass band, which is the heart and soul you know, of, of your town or in your village, etc., and wants to send their children there to learn musical education, or parents themselves want to go there to help with the admin, or go there and become players themselves. That's the key. We cannot afford to lose any of those bands, not a single one. I remember my first regular uh, conducting appointment and I turned up to work with this band and went on to thoroughly enjoy it, had the most wonderful few years there. But I remember fairly early on, we had a, an engagement in the town. I think the, the local town hall had just been renovated. So we were there, the local radio station was there and dance groups and everybody was performing. So the band did its stint and we came off stage and I was chatting to a couple of people and an old fella came up to me and said, I really enjoyed that, really loved it. I've lived in this town all my life and I didn't know there was a band there and I thought oh okay we've got a little bit of work to do here and that's not to say it was necessarily the band's fault or maybe that was just an exception in that particular case but that really hit home to me early on right we've got a job to do here to make sure that the band is apart from anything else known in its local community because my goodness if it isn't known in its local community what are we doing? We do see some shining examples. Of course, we can point to different bands around the country. Oh, you've got one up in Scotland. It's Colburn, you know, the Colburn organisation. Fantastically run organisation. But again, interestingly, you know, if you go to other areas of the country, there, there are those shining examples. I think it's the Shepherd Group up in the in the northeast. There's Amersham, um, Wantage down and London, the Southern Counties. This band's dotted all over, you know, you know you've got Ratby in the Midlands. If you come into Wales, there's a Tom Gwynlice or Goodwick. Like, we can all talk about those examples, but they are the exception rather than the rule. And that's, got, that, that's, the, that's the worry for me. The other interesting thing for me is that the Brass Bands England supported this, the crowdfunder campaign. Uh, it's been very successful. I take my hat off for them for actually doing it. You know, I think it's raised over 140,000 pounds. The most successful bands who have raised the most money haven't been the big name bands with that. It's been the bands who've been able to offer people within their local community something back in return. So the ones who've been saying, yeah, you know, pledge 50 quid and will you come out and do carols on your street, socially distance and all that part, of course. Uh, or, you know, something which the community can actually identify and appreciate rather than just saying, as we do get a lot in banding, just give us money. What we do with it, you know, and it's, it's a big fault of bands at the very top level. You know, you can't turn around and say, woe is us, you know, please give us money. We've lost our sponsorship or whatever it is. We need, you know, £100,000 or more to keep ourselves running every year. The first question you've got to ask is, well, you know, for £100,000, what do you actually do? 
and back in return. If you're just surviving by, you know, it's a hundred thousand pounds just to go to contests or a hundred thousand pounds, you know, just to do concerts in many ways, but not to actually invest that money back into what you do within your community. That's when the problems are going to arise. And it's the bands who have got that, understand that community ethos. And then on a wider stage, take that wider. They're the ones I think are going to prosper in the future. There's a lesson to be learned from bands uh, in, in the, at the lowest competitive levels would invariably be the best run bands organization wise and understanding what their purpose is. And some top bands have really got to look at those and learn a lesson. On this obsession with contesting, this is an issue we've been hearing about for some years now. And then a couple of years back, I think it was Eddie Gregson made the same point that bands quite often spend uh, too much time wrapped up in the, the fast-paced world of contesting. And that's not to say, of course, that contesting doesn't have its place. It's very, very important to a lot of people. They appreciate the competitive element. Maybe it focuses the mind for a lot of people, drives them to certain goals. How do we steer away from that exclusively? And we look to other opportunities in the year when bands, for example, in the UK might perform serious music, but in a non-competing environment. The RNCM Festival of Brass is one such event that comes to mind and seems to do so rather successfully, certainly in normal times. But how do we just start to shift the mindset a little? I think you're right there, shifting the mindset. But I think what we need to do is get a right mix of what is contesting, live concerts, recordings, etc., and, and getting ourselves appreciated by a, you know a, a wider audience, you know, a wider general public. Contesting hasn't changed effectively for 150 years and again it, it, as i said this the, the old cliche it's like trying to explain test match cricket to american tourists you know they look at you or on the opposite way around trying to explain the seventh inning stretch in baseball to somebody from glasgow or something like that you know what i mean we, we have to reach out and, and tell them the problem with contesting we equate quantity with quality okay instead of going for the quality side of it. We've got to make competitions much more flexible and malleable. We've got to make them at times bigger, other times smaller, but they've all got to have some sort of purpose. And the other thing, you know, we've got to, I know people will always come back and say, oh, we always play contests to ourselves. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. What we've done is made ourselves play contests to ourselves. We fail to see that there is an audience out there which appreciates good quality music played well at whatever level, you know, if that's, that's a fourth section or a youth section band all the way up to the top bands at the Royal Albert Hall. But we have failed to realize that we've got to break away from our little cul-de-sac and reach out. We've got to explain what we do. And an audience now no longer wants to sit in a hall from nine o'clock in the morning, not knowing what the draw is, all these type of things, all the way through to six or seven o'clock at the night to find out what, to be told that, the, the winning band, thanks very much indeed, was better than the rest of you. That's it. Off you go home. They don't want that. They, they're much more sophisticated listeners out there, music listeners, and we've lost our connection with them. I saw something on Facebook somebody put in a little while ago. I think it was from Brighouse and Rastrick. I think it was from about 90, mid-70s, something like that. And they would have given a concert to something like, I think it was like the Swaledale Classical Music Society. Now, these are societies and festivals, et cetera, which are out there. There's places in Harrogate, in Cheltenham, uh, Snake Maltings, et cetera. We've got to reach out. We've got to be playing in those events. We've got to be showcasing what we actually do. 
it understand quality competition. It's it's a bit like you see the, the events like the uh, BBC Musician of the Year uh, or the Cardiff Singer of the World, which which takes place with us. They have qualifying rounds, but the final isn't made up of you know fifty five bands and all this sort of stuff. From you know the the constant they concentrate on the very very top level, the best quality possible, and you know we've got to look at that. Uh, and really be realistic of whether or not the product that we have within banding is good enough to attract a discerning audience, an understanding audience, and a, an audience which wants to pay good money to come to listen to us perform live. And that includes the music that we actually play as well. I, I very rarely come across people who say, oh, brass bands, I don't like what they do, I don't like what they play, I don't like what they sound. On the subject of audiences, I've been fortunate enough to get to quite a lot of contests over the past uh, five to ten years where I've been listening or working and I've sat through the entire event and I know you've been doing it far longer and it's heartbreaking sometimes when you're sitting there in a hall for the day and you're watching bands come onto the stage having given weeks and weeks perhaps even months of preparations to play to a handful of people in the hall. To what extent is it a twofold issue to be looking within ourselves, to be looking within the brass band world? Because quite a lot of the time bands don't necessarily seem to want to listen to bands. And then, as you suggest, you have to be looking to the to the outside world, as it were, to be getting people in the room. Well, I think it tells you something, doesn't it? If somebody does a hobby which they really enjoy, really love, are dedicated to whatever, and they don't want to listen to the music that we want to play... That tells you something. So again, we've got to realize and look at ourselves. I, it's not a question of saying, you know, it, it's a behavioral thing and everybody need, wants to go to the bar, et cetera. No, there are people out there, they don't want to listen to, like the general public, another 19 bands playing the same test piece. They will, you know, bandsmen will go in and listen. They will, there is a friendly rivalry between bands, you know, and you will go and you, you know, and bands do want to go and listen to another band play and listen to, you know, top players, but they do, but they don't want to sit there because they've had a guts full of a piece of music they haven't really enjoyed playing. So again, we've got to be much more flexible what we do. But the big major competitions, we, they've got to become smaller because the other thing that we found over the last 25 years is that whereas, for instance, at the national championships in the British Open, there used to be possibly 10 or 11 bands capable of really winning that competition if they had a good day uh, playing the type of music that they play really well. The advent of these blockbuster test pieces, with the, which the emphasis is almost selectively on technique, and it's not really a test of interpretation, which at the very top level, perhaps it, it should be. That is the one advent of it. Players are thinking to themselves, do you know what? I didn't really enjoy playing that myself. Why do they want to go into the hall and listen to another 17 performances of it? And if they are not going to do it, how do you then get a, the general public to do it? And how do we educate the general public if we don't get those pieces of music out to them to listen to in the first place? It's one of the great plus points of, for instance, the British Open. And I know people have a go at the British Open saying they pick populist pieces. But if somebody says to you the test piece of general public or oh, the music's from Shahrazad, Arabian Nights, and somebody says, oh, I know that music, Rimsky-Korsakoff. Oh, right, I wouldn't mind coming to listen to that. Great. All of a sudden, you've, you've created interest. If you turn around to them and say, yeah, this is a new piece of music called, you know, uh, we're going to take over the world standing on Jupiter with spaceships. 
right? They're going to turn around and say, nah, I've no idea what that's about, mate. You know, thanks very much, but no thanks. And, and, and you turn around and say, yeah, but it starts off with somebody blowing into a conch horn. And, um, you know, we've got 19 percussionists and it ends with, a you know, a gong and 17 timps and a big C major chord. They're just going to say, whoopee da to you. You know, I don't want it. But if you say we play music, for instance, by Vaughan Williams, Variations of Brass Band, if you're going to inform listener, they say, oh, I wouldn't mind coming to listen to that. I like his music. We've got to educate the public. And as you said, the one part of that, what we desperately need is more events like the, the, the Northern uh, Festival of Brass, the Brass Band Festival there, created by Paul Hindmarsh. Of all the events that we cannot afford to lose, major events, that is the one. That is our showcase to the outside world. And when Radio 3 and all these people turn around and say, nah, we don't particularly need to take anything from that, then, then we're in real, real trouble. Let's have a little think about the voices, those who are writing for band. Of course, we have many treasured figures who predominantly come from within the brass band world and we treasure each and every one of them. But I was reading some archive British Bandsman editions recently and there were arguments raging, I think it was about 25, 30 years ago. People who were furious at the choice of a particular test piece because they didn't know it and they didn't like it and they felt a little bit unfamiliar and there's always this back and forth. The old letters page, the good old letters page on British Bandsman was <laughs> stuffed full and then the following week somebody else would come back and say but this is a fresh voice and we need to welcome fresh voices and, and so this back and forth would go on for weeks on end and in many respects that hasn't changed but also in many respects we still don't have enough figures from outside or coming from different musical walks of life Writing for band, you touched on uh, Vaughan Williams with his variations for brass band. We're looking to Gustav Holst. Sir James McMillan has written for band in recent times as well, but it still feels like we're missing out on getting composers who haven't grown up within the brass band world to write pieces for us. There is, um, unfortunately, there is like an inverted snobbery within brass banding that you hear this thing, you know, we don't need these people to write for, they don't understand brass banding. Okay, they don't understand what we do, you know, only brass band people understand brass banded, only brass band people can write about brass banded, you know, journalists, that was us, you know, only brass band composers can write for brass band, only brass band people can adjudicate brass band competition, it's not, it's complete Luddite nonsense, you know, I, I remember there's a couple of examples to use, I think it may be, about, I don't know how long ago it is now, it's quite a while, maybe 15 years, if remember the test piece Prague, Yes. Which, was play, which was a regional test piece by Judith Bingham. And Judith Bingham is a wonderful composer. It's a, it was a very different piece, but it's a, you listen to it, it's a wonderful interpretive piece of music, very evocative, and it needs a good band, and more importantly, it needs a damn good conductor to get into the soul of it and understand it and shape it. And It's all about texture and colour. And I remember, you know, infamously one adjudicator called it plague and everybody had a laugh and, oh, aren't we clever and all this part of it. And isn't it rubbish? Why are we playing this nonsense? My word, did it show us up to be absolute Neanderthals, musical Neanderthals when we did that. We should be embracing these people. Another example, of course, is well known was that the composer Michael Nyman, uh, you know, multi award winning composer known around the world, he made it known that he wished to write a composition, a major composition for brass bands, which hopefully would have been used, understood possibly at the at the British Open. And um, Bram Gay, 
uh, was contacted and I understand that you know allegedly that he turned around and said you know we don't need your music it won't transcribe well for brass bands thanks very much but no thanks you know it's a neanderthal um approach when it comes to that we should be embracing composers you talked about james mcmillan's work now the, the work of james McMillan, it, you wouldn't rank it in his greatest works uh for it but it was the first time that he had stepped in to write for the medium we could have asked him again. We, we would have to find a great deal of funding, I would have thought, for James McMillan. But he, he could have done it. You've got people in Wales, we've got Carl Jenkins, you know. And these are the type of people, if, if he wrote a piece of music for brass bands, he brings with him an audience, a fan base, whatever, would, who would want to come and listen to it. Again, showing the worst side of ourselves, you had uh, Muckle Flugger at the Rory Boyles. Wonderful piece, very, very different. And the number of times I've heard well-known conductors turn around and say, oh, I didn't have a clue what he was doing, you know, it was it was written in the in the wrong spheres, you know, getting B flat basses to play very high and all that sort of stuff. You never heard any of these conductors complain when they got the euphonium player playing top Z down to bottom, treble G, whatever it is. You never hear them complain there. They were challenged as musicians by a fine composer who looked at the template and the palette that brass bands had to offer and said to themselves, how do I do that? How do, how do I interpret that? We should have embraced that all along. And we need to do that, not only at the top level, but further, further down through the sections. One of the best pieces we've heard lately is Neverland by Christopher Bond. You know, I can't, I can't imagine anybody in the fourth section who played that who didn't enjoy it because it was written with understanding understand at the level that it was pitched at, also about how many players will be able to play different parts, how you cross over parts, etc. It was a wonderful piece. But of course, you asked, you know, so we need to encourage that part of it as well. But again, how do you actually do that? How do you just say to composer, no, we don't want you to write the next blockbuster 25 minute test piece. It, you know, I just want you to write something simple, something, you know, accessible and can be played at, at that level. And I tell you, doing that is a skill and an art in itself. If you, you know, you're old enough to have played most probably Four Little Maids by John Carr. But strangely enough, the, the girls in it will, know that, will all now be pensioners most probably. So it'll be four old spinsters it could be called now. I, I, I don't know. But it's that. The Shipbuilders, Peter York. There's another piece. Wonderful music written specifically at a certain level. We've got to encourage that also. But the main thing, I, I agree with you. We need to get outside voices, well-known outside voices. We have some that are doing it, people like Gavin Higgins, you know, who's making a big impression in the orchestral world. He's the composer of residence at uh, National Orchestra of Wales. He had his work played at the proms this year. We've got to encourage those people to write for brass bands, but we've got to encourage people from outside who can bring something new to us. And we should not be afraid to tackle it, not just saying, Give me 20 minutes of bombast and nothing and technical rubbish. That that doesn't help us at all. And you can understand why some composers then say, stuff this, I'm not getting involved in all this flack. I'll just go and write for something else. What's well, Rory Boyle? You have a look, Rory Boyle. He had all that flack from the from the European after the European Championships. And what happened? The work then was at a British Composer Award. <laughs> because his peers and people who understood him as a composer appreciated what he did. Yet we've lost him. I don't think he'll ever write for brass bands again. It's a huge loss. As we sit here just now in this enforced break in traditional 
banding and as we reflect on, on things so far, it's fair to say some associations have been pretty quiet. But we should touch on Brass Bands England for a moment because it has been rather active, whether that's taking the messages from the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and then working with groups like Making Music to ensure that's relevant and specific to bands. But then there have been other activities, webinars, training events. We see that membership seems to be on the rise with the organisation and of course it received quite a major funding boost of more than £227,000 via Arts Council England. You yourself at Four Bars Rest, you recognised BBE in your awards towards the end of last year. How do you reflect upon some of its work over the past few months? Well, I, I, the award I was given to it, and if you read, you know, I won't say the, the citation that I, that I wrote, the appreciation I wrote to them, as I said to them, if you have an organisation where everybody agrees with what you do, that results in hubris, and that doesn't make a good organisation. You have an organisation which people don't listen to at all, that equates to irrelevance. What you need is an organisation which has that balance between the two. Some things that they do that people will agree with and see which is good, and some things that they don't. And at the moment, that's what Brass Bands England does, and does well. There's a lot of times I disagree and don't think that some of the things that they've done, I've had enough arguments with, with Kenny over the years, the CEO, and with them. And, and there are certain things I think sometimes they, they need, to, there's a, need to look and say, you know, whether or not that's really been done well, the message. There was the question, of course, at the, the, the last part of the regional championships. It was a clumsy way between different parties who really didn't want to speak to each other. And it, it wasn't good for banding overall. But Brass Bands England, on the, on the other part of that then, has you know, made sure that its member bands have been informed. Sabah is doing the same up in Scotland, I understand, but in a different, in a different way. There's a fledgling organisation in Wales which is coming along, which hopefully will be doing that in the future. But brass, overall, Brass Bands England, if you're looking at a ledger, you know, they're in credit. And I don't mean just financially in credit. I think they're in credit with the initiatives that they've taken on. The webinars, especially the things like they had with Philip Harper, Roger Webster, etc they've been great because it enables players and conductors you know to to pose questions to somebody and to learn something from them i think they've been wonderful the other thing that they've done really well is tackling some of the issues which have been left for far too long equality and diversity and inclusion which i think is going to be essential for us to as a banding movement to flourish in, in, over the next 20 and 30 years i think that's very very important indeed I'm not too sure about the competition side of stuff or wanting to host the European Championships because I think that's an event and a you know which needs to have a to be completely revamped. I don't know whether or not that, that, that there's got relevance over the next 10 years or more. The one thing which I did find which was disappointing, and it was nothing to do with Brass Bands England, but it was actually to do with the people who fund them from the Arts Council. And that was when Darren Henley OBE gave what was supposed to be a keynote speech. To their conference and to put it bluntly it was pathetic you know it was patronizing tap on the head haven't you done well you know no understanding of about what we do or, or what brass bands england really had done it was a template speech you know you could have inserted the bowls association or whatever it needs to be it was a speech for a certain level of funding and it was awful it was given by somebody in good intentions you know sat in front of our bookcases as we all do nowadays to make ourselves look intellectual and it was full of useless needless 
meaningless aphorisms. You know, you can only get what was it? You can only get brass through gold and silver and all this nonsense and eyes on the prize. My God, that's the type of stuff you give twelve-year-old kids playing football on a Sunday morning. You know, that isn't something to do. That he wouldn't have given that talk to you know the Royal Ballet. Yes, when I saw Darren Henley would be addressing the BBE conference, I have to admit I was really intrigued and looking forward to hearing what he had to say. It was just a little bit unfortunate in the end that, yes, it did have that feeling of being a bit of a template speech and there were some clever attempts at the PR spinning lines in there to maybe try and endear himself to the banding community. But I have to admit there were some other presentations during the course of the day which really hit home with me a great deal more, the Amersham Band presentation. Oh yeah, that was superb, wasn't it? They've raised over, I think it's about £450,000. Putting the context and perspective, you know, they come from a financially, you know, an economically a much more prosperous area than many. But what it shows is that they're connected with that community. It's much more difficult to get rich people to part with money than it is for poor people to part with money. If you go Carolyn, you a local community, you know somebody, Mrs. Jones or whatever it is around the corner, will dip into her purse and give money, money that maybe, you know, is hard to come by. She will plonk it in you a box because she is proud of what you abandon does. It's very difficult sometimes to get multimillionaires to do that, but it's still a trick to make sure that they do put their hands in their pocket. I take my hat off to them a thousand times. The evolution of that organisation in recent years has been quite something, and if anyone isn't too familiar with the band's story, I would really encourage you to go and have a little look online at its development. And the way, I guess in many respects, that they've they've developed, but also looked to future-proof the organisation and really embed it within the local community. You mentioned a moment ago uh, you're in the European Brass Band Championship. It is usually one of the main heavyweights, I guess, of the year. It isn't happening again this year because of obvious reasons. One of the, the greatest logistical issues for bands going to take part is the phenomenal amount of fundraising that has to take place. I know speaking from a Scottish perspective, there have been years where bands just decide they cannot afford to go and compete. If you look to a band like Cory, which I guess is a regular attender, certainly in recent times, I dread to think how much money that band has had to raise to be able to get itself to the Euros wherever they happen to be each year. What future then for the Euros? Hopefully there is a future for the European Championships. However, there's no future for it for me, for the model that they base it on at the present time. The problem with it is twofold. About 15 years ago, we used to go to the press conference. Myself, Kenny Crookston, who was then in his other guys, we, um, when he was, and we, we used to ask the same question each year. How are you, what are you doing to get cultural money to back what you do? And twice they said that they made an application to some sort of European funding body and just missed out by the narrowest margin, you know, to get the type of funding which would have underpinned the event. Now, they got that close and then forgot about it. And from then on, the event has been financially, has been, is a model which is increasingly becoming unsustainable. It's all well and good, I think, to say this have a festival. Let's include everybody from composers and conductors to composers to youth bands to emerging nations to the elite level. Fantastic. How is it going to be paid for? You can't keep relying on the traditional sponsors because, you know, they themselves are facing financial problems. The one thing that we keep being told by EBA, which is an absolute nonsense, is that the event is sold out. 
and therefore ticket sales are doing it because you only need to go into the youth event on the Sunday or need to go to some of the other, uh, other promotions that they do. They never sold out. The concert is sold out, the own choice, and, and perhaps if, they, if they're fortunate, the, the championship section test piece. But that's it. So you can't rely on that to give you the type of income coming in. And finally, you cannot keep asking the bands. It's a bit like asking Real Madrid or Barca or you know Barcelona to keep paying for everything for them to go to every match to get the European Cup final. Sponsor, they've got to do it in a way in which those bands are rewarded for their excellence. You can't keep giving them an instrument and saying, there we are, the instrument is worth X euros. It's never worth X euros. That's the retail price. And the other thing, quite, you know, quite laughably, really, is it's nice that bands have awarded prizes. Uh, but you take Corey, who has been so successful at the event, deservedly so, the world's best band, and the prize that they get is usually a shiny instrument, you know, which they have to take back and flog when they come back home. You, you can't pay the hotel bill by giving them, a, you know, a euphonium and saying, thanks very much indeed, we'll see you again in a couple of years' time. The, the whole structure of the European Championships has got to change. The whole ethos of it has got to be paired back, I think, to the essentials uh, to start off with. And the, the additional events can be added on at different times. There's nothing wrong with the youth event especially, but you can't keep asking parents, keep putting in money to send the kids year in, year out to a brass band event and then turn up there, proud as puncher you were banned on a Sunday morning and you were the only people in the audience listening to your kids play. That is soul destroying. That doesn't, that's nothing aspirational, inspirational about that whatsoever. That's, that's got to go. The European Youth Band is another thing. What is, what is it for? What does it do? just to get kids together to play for that event for a couple of days. It's a wonderful experience in many ways, but what's the purpose of it, really? You can't keep asking the very best bands to keep coming up with 15, 16, 20,000 pounds or more to keep going to those events. It doesn't work like that anymore. So hopefully we can continue to look forward to a European Championship in the coming years, but perhaps a more concentrated version of the contest. Ewan, in the pages of British bandsmen in recent times, comparisons have been made between the circumstances in which we find ourselves during the pandemic and the world wars and the decline of heavy industry in the UK. In terms of the effect on the brass band community, we know obviously they're very different events. But is that a comparison that you recognise in some way and feel that is justified in terms of the magnitude and the, the effect on brass banding? Yeah, looking historically at, at banding, you know, the, the, the major change came, I think, after the Second World War. The, the result for banding of that was the creation of the regional championship structure, which was the thing really has been underpinning the foundations of banding for the next 60 years. So that was a good thing that came out of that. The problem with it is that, of course, it started off, it was successful, then we got used to it, but we never then thought to ourselves, how do we improve on it? And when the great changes came in from the 1980s and 1990s, when, you know, we looked away from the traditional heartlands of banding were changing also, we should have made structural changes. We did it with the, the addition of the, of the, when the first section was included. Um, and we did some little tinkering with the boundaries. And I think one of the regions actually 
ceased and it was incorporated within the Midlands. But it's, that should be an ongoing process, always should be an ongoing process. And I think we've missed that opportunity over the last, especially the last 20 years. So this again, going back to right to the very beginning we talked about, if we could take a positive from what has been happening with COVID is that hopefully it will give us that reset button when we get back to realize that we have to implement change. That's implementing change as individuals, as players, how we want to play and how much commitment and dedication we give to our bands for the bands themselves, how are they organized and how they attract audiences and connect with their local communities. And then nationally, how the organizations which run us and you know organize our contest in look to attract audiences to come and appreciate what we actually do. And everybody's got a you know a stake in that. I, I wonder really how many people have got an appetite to say to themselves, yep, we need to change, I want to change, let's speak with somebody else who's much possibly in the same boat as us. I don't see a lot of that integration thinking of saying, right, what are we going to do together? Everybody's thinking, oh, hopefully they'll change and then possibly we'll do something afterwards. If we just come to the end of COVID, we're all vaccinated and we all think, great, let's get back to doing what we do normally again. We are lost, that's a, that's a wasted opportunity for me. So here we are in our timeline. It's early in 2021. We know vaccines are starting to be rolled out across the UK and there's lots of optimism associated with that. But that's not going to be done overnight. And at the moment, particularly now and following the festive period, we're seeing these worrying statistics, rising numbers and concerns over the NHS being really stretched. The UK is in different degrees of lockdown and generally people mixing at the moment is just a no-go. Obviously, traditional banding falls down the pecking order somewhat. But I don't know if you're a gambling man, Ewan. If you had a couple of pounds rattling around in your pocket, would you be putting <laughs> them on the British Open going ahead this year? This is from a Scotsman talking now. Pounds <laughs> in my pocket, my blimey. I'd have to do that one, yeah. People know me. I Before COVID, I, I, was, a, I was a poker player. Very bad one, all right? I got to admit, uh, Sunday nights used to be played with uh, my friends in a, in a local pub. I got to admit, I wasn't very good at it, you know, that part of it there. I'm hoping, I don't mind losing a few quid now to say that hopefully that the British Open will be on. If I was, the odds on it, however, I would say a lengthening. And in a way, that's not to say that will be a disaster, because if that gives us the time to reset for even 2022 and come back where people have used that time constructively, so when we come back in 2022, we are starting off, as we say, on a clean slate, learning the lessons of, of what COVID has actually taught us, implemented those at all different levels. And we've got a product then, which is much healthier. We've got a product which is much more relevant and especially is a product which appeals to a wider audience. And if we get back to that, you know, after two years away, I don't think that will be a wasted uh, opportunity but we have to grasp that opportunity when it actually comes we just can't go back thinking it's back to pre-covid normality we're not going to survive 10 20 30 years down the line with that type of thinking that, that's gone and gone for good well here's hoping of course we can get back to these activities that we hold daily as soon as it's deemed uh, safe to do so but as you say hopefully the enforced break has given us all time to reflect and think 
a little bit more strategically about the months and the years ahead. I should just say at this point as well, and we, we did touch on it earlier in the conversation, congratulations to each and every band and each and every band's person who has been doing everything they can to keep their organisation moving forward over these past few months, whether they have maybe been able to, within the rules, meet in small groups when that's been allowed, or if they've transitioned activities online, had to install some new software, learn some new skills, begin the process of putting the videos together. I think just the very process of getting involved and seeing your friends on that weekly basis, something that we're all so used to doing, in normal times will hopefully stand them in good stead. I echo that there. We did the Four Bars Rest Awards and it would have been wonderful to give a Four Bars Rest Award to. And I think every band has got that person within their organisation. The, you know, the diehard person who has made sure that the water has been turned off in the band room, you know, and made sure that the band room has been cleaned, has made sure that, it, you know, has, has been the person who's organised the quiz nights online and all that. Those are the heart and soul of those bands and those are the people we need to support. You know, every band I'm sure has got them. It doesn't matter what level they actually are. And again, those are the people who need our support as best as possible for, for the future. I am hopeful for the future, but I think only hopeful if we've learned the lessons of what has actually gone on over the last 10 months to a year. That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thank you to Ewan Fox and thanks to you for listening. Do get in touch about anything you might have heard on the podcast. You can email info at britishbandsman.com. That's info at britishbandsman.com. Remember, you can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsman. It costs just £42.99 for one year. Go to britishbandsman.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now. Bye.